0: I'm going to start this morning with a music theory lesson. I know that's why you all came to church today. Dave McKean is excited, I can tell you that much. You came to church to hear how much of a music nerd I am. That's exactly why you came to church today. And so if you look, excuse me, I'm going to need to make my way to the piano, because I'm going to need to demonstrate for you. i put this down. Now, I'm going to talk to you for just a minute about dissonance. Dissonance. Now, maybe you've heard the word before, maybe you haven't. What is dissonance? Dissonance is two sounds that, just very simply put, don't sound right together. I'll I'll give you an example. They sound like they clash together. Listen to these two sounds. Do you hear those just don't sound right? they sound like they shouldn't be together now this these two sounds you say oh that sounds nice oh we call that consonance dissonance consonance ah dissonance is unstable It doesn't feel like you should stop there. And probably the best example of this is what music theorists call the tritone. The tritone. You ready? This is the tritone. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like it should stay there. It sounds unstable. And in fact, we've been conditioned across the history of music to, to say that is unstable. In fact, in the Middle Ages... That was so dissonant that composers wouldn't basically use that chord. In fact, it was so unstable and it sounded so harsh that it became known as the devil's chord. It just felt just so out of place and so almost wrong. Well, we've moved past that age. And actually, that tone, that tritone chord, is at the heart of a lot of what you understand today as modern music. And I'll give you an example that tritone forms a chord. Where should that chord go? If I just kept on playing that chord, you'd say, no, that needs to go... Right? You feel that. You say, that's where it has to go. And so much music today, even pop music, all kinds of music, is based on that simple idea that if you get to here, you have to go here. If I were playing a hymn for you, and I said... walked away, you'd say, you can't do that to us. You, you can't do that to us, because once you get to here, you have to get to here. And then you say, oh, we're done. Okay, we're at the end. You're stable. Now, let me just, if you just remember one phrase from this, other than Peter is a nerd. One phrase its this. Dissonance moves to consonance. Dissonance, clash, chaos, instability. It moves to consonance, stability, final, done, complete. Do you get the idea? Do you know this is not just a musical concept? I'm convinced we are hardwired as humans to want dissonance to move to consonance. And this is true all over art. And I'll give you an example. If any of you have ever read Jane Austen, If, I even forget their names, I'm sorry, the Pride and Prejudice people, I know there's Mr. Darcy, I forget the lady's name, I'm sorry, some of you ladies can shout it out to me. Elizabeth, yes, right, Elizabeth, that's right. If Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy never had dissonance, pride, prejudice, the whole story wouldn't feel so good when they finally got together at the end right? If their relationship was just, hey, I met Mr. Darcy, he's so great, we started getting to know each other, we never ran into any difficulties, and we had this great marriage and lived happily ever after, you're like, well, that's cool, but I don't really need Jane Austen to write that book for me, right? It's dissonance that makes consonance feel right. And this is true in anything. Ask any Hollywood director, The idea of a movie is to create dissonance, to create chaos, to create confusion, so that at the end, when it all comes together, at the end you say, oh, that feels so good, I'm so relieved. And the the funny thing is, you know it's going to end right. You know how every Hallmark movie is going to end, right? You know every single one, and you can predict it. And yet in the moment you say, oh, that dissonance, I need to feel how it's going to end. And then it gets there and you say, Oh, okay. And you say, where are you going with this? I'm going with this. I think what God has hardwired into all of us, in our music, in our art, in the way we experience our own lives, you say, what do you mean? I mean, things feel so much better when you have to work hard for them. And you have to endure obstacles to get them. Things that come easy to you, and let me speak to you younger people for just a minute. Things that come easy to you are not the things that make life worthwhile. Things that are hard for you. Things that you have to endure and persevere and challenge. You, you, you older folks in here, you know that. You testify that the best things in life that I've received are the things that I've had to work the hardest for and overcome the most for. What is that? Dissonance? Consonance. God has hardwired that in us. And I believe the reason He has hardwired us in it is because He knows how the story's gonna end. What we have been reading about in Mark chapter 13 is Jesus looking ahead to the season of the greatest dissonance, the greatest chaos, the greatest trouble that the world has ever known. The world will literally be coming apart at the seams, we would say, in our own idiom, our own jargon today. And what we're going to look at today is that God did not intend for the world to end in chaos. He didn't intend for it to end in a nuclear explosion and the lights go off and it's done. That's not how the world is going to end. The world is going to end when dissonance and chaos and trouble moves to consonance and harmony and finality. And that is going to begin, that consonance is going to arrive when Jesus Christ returns to the scene And when every eye will see him. The title of the message this morning is simply this. The Son of Man comes. The Son of Man comes. Drawn exactly from here in verse 26. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. I don't want this message to, again, as we've been talking about, just be a theoretical kind of instruction. What is this going to be like when Jesus comes? When is he going to come? And all of that. I want all of us today to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who heard Jesus' sermon for the first time. I want you to think about what the disciples were processing and feeling as Jesus has given this sermon filled with chaos and confusion and trouble ahead, and they are sitting there receiving it, and then at the end of the sermon, Jesus looks at them and says, and then the Son of Man is coming. And if we get that, if we get that feeling in our hearts, I think we're going to leave these doors this morning different than when we came in. I think if we really internalize what those disciples would have heard when they heard those words, I think you're going to live differently this week than maybe you did last week. You're going to have a little more hope in your life. You're going to have a little more love in your heart for our Savior. At least that's my hope and my prayer. We're going to talk about this text, these four simple verses, in three phrases, The first phrase we're going to use is earth crumbles. Because I think that's what Jesus is really getting at here in verse number 24 and 25. And then we're going to look at Christ comes. Earth crumbles, dissonance. Christ comes, the consonance that is being restored. And then finally, I want to look at this. Christians await. Christians await. The earth crumbles, Christ comes, Christians await. That's when we look at ourselves. Let's start, first of all, with earth crumbling. And let's ask ourselves this question first, when? When is Jesus speaking of here? Well, let's get ourselves in context again. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to have them open to Mark 13 so we can look at the text together and you make sure that I'm not saying something that's not here. Because ultimately, the authority in this church And in our Christian lives, it's not your pastor, it's not your elders here at Straight Gate Church, it's no man. It's the Bible, it's the Word of God. And so we all submit ourselves to it, both me, as I preach, and you, who listen and compare what I say to the text. So look with me in verse 24. Jesus says, But in those days after that tribulation so that we need to understand what are those days. Well, we talked about that last week, and you can go look at that sermon on our website and get the whole conclusion of it. But I'll just give you the very simple explanation. Our view as we have been going through this passage is that when Jesus was giving these words, he was at least giving a short-term partial fulfillment. He was speaking in words that his disciples would have understood him to be speaking to the destruction of the temple. And there was, in our view, at least in my view, a partial fulfillment of these words in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, when, as Luke says, armies compass about surround Jerusalem, and when they knock her to the ground. That happened in AD 70. So I think there is at least a partial fulfillment, a kind of pattern, a kind of, as Spurgeon said, a rehearsal... For a future event. Now, what future event? I believe that it is pointing forward to the tribulation that is prophesied in Revelation 6. Through Revelation 19. And maybe some of you went home this week, uh, last week, and you studied and you read Revelation 6 to 19 again and you tried to compare notes, and that would be a good thing. I invite you to do it again this week. Now, as we talked about last week, there is a group of people who believe that not only these words have been fulfilled, but indeed most of the book of Revelation, including Revelation 6 through 19, has already been fulfilled in the past. And as I said last week, I don't believe that's the case. And just one other reason that I think should be very challenging to hold that view is that this happened, the sacking of Jerusalem, Roman destruction of the temple, happened in A.D. 70. That's known. That's historical. The book of Revelation was almost certainly written around A.D. 95, about 25 years later. Now, this is a real problem for those who believe that most of the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. But, in fact, we have very strong historical evidence that John was writing about 25 years after. Why? Where do we have that? Well, just give you very quickly, there was a church father, a man named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a student of a man named Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John himself, who wrote the book of Revelation. We're only talking two generations down and do you know what Irenaeus writes? He writes that the book of Revelation was written in the time at the end of the reign of Domitian. Domitian was a Roman emperor who died around AD 96. It's likely that Irenaeus knew exactly when Revelation was written. Now, if Revelation was written in, in AD 95 or so, is it likely that John would have written about events that had already taken place 25 years previously and said, hey brothers and sisters, I'm telling you what's shortly gonna come to pass. I'm gonna tell you what's about to happen. And he was writing about things that had happened 25 years before. I don't I don't think so. And that is a real problem for those who believe that all of these events have already occurred. I don't believe that. I do believe that Jesus and the book of Revelation are pointing ahead to a final, ultimate fulfillment of a great tribulation that we also see referred to in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Daniel. Now, look at what Jesus says here in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, and I believe again, he's speaking about a great future tribulation. He says, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. He's speaking of a kind of eclipse, a great eclipse. And the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. Now, you say, what are these powers that be in heaven? Well, let me just say, there are some people who believe that Jesus is speaking figuratively here. That he's speaking in a kind of imagery that would have been very familiar to Jews looking back at Old Testament passages, speaking of the sun being darkened. And in fact, I'll give you a couple of references. We won't read them, but I'll just give you a couple of references. You can go back and look at this very poetic, this very, this very picturesque language. Isaiah 13 and verse 10, which speaks of the judgment of God falling on the Babylonians. Ezekiel 32 and verse 7, which speaks of God's judgment against the Egyptians. And Joel chapter 2 and verse 30 and 31. God speaking of this great day of the Lord that's coming. And using phrases like the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood. And some people read those words and they say, I think Jesus is just using this figurative language. He's not actually saying that the sun is going to go out or that the moon is not going to have light anymore. He's talking about, in figurative language, about everything's going to change. Everything that we count on, everything that we rely on, everything that we think is stable in our world, our governmental systems, our leadership, it's all going to be absolutely in chaos. And and it is possible, it is possible that Jesus is intending us to look back to those Old Testament pictures and say, this is a figurative, a poetic way of speaking. But I'm not convinced entirely. And let me tell you why. Because if you look to Luke 21, when Jesus, the other passage in which Jesus is giving the same sermon, just from additional details, listen to what Luke records. Jesus says, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. There shall be signs. Like, you're going to see something in the sun, and you're going to say, That's weird. And you're going to see something, they're going to see something in the moon, and they're going to say, that's strange, and in the stars. So, so I don't think we should be so quick to say that Jesus isn't actually speaking literally here, that there are going to be astonishing things happening astronomically up in the heavens, and people are going to be saying, what on earth is going on? Now, here's one other reason I think... We, we should at least default to that. Even if we say there, there's, a, there's a possibility that Jesus is speaking figuratively here. Here's why I think we should default to that. Because Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus not only created all things, he created everything. But he also says that he is before all things, and by him, by Jesus, all things consist And you know what that word consist means? It literally means hold together. Do you know Jesus' power is holding together all the laws of nature that you see right now? Do you know it is Jesus' power that is at the root of the law of gravity? And that if Jesus withheld his hand, gravity would no longer cease to be. You see, all the rules, all the, all the ways in which the heavenly bodies relate to each other, all of their orbits, everything that we count on such that we can say, I know exactly where that sun is going to be at that time tomorrow. You know exactly when. Why? Because Jesus made it, and because Jesus holds it all together. So it's not strange to me that just before the time of his coming, Jesus will be if you will, in a sense, withdrawing his hand and there will be chaos in the natural world and in all the laws of order and in the sun and the moon and the stars that human beings have never seen before. Why? Because dissonance moves to consonance. And they're at this time of great trouble that the world has never seen before. Friends, it does not Confuse me or trouble me at all? To think that the laws of nature that Jesus Himself made will be going really wonky, and will be going really wacky. And why do I say this as well? Because listen to what Luke chapter twenty one says. He says that 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 the sea and the waves will be roaring. And listen to what he says: men's heart failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Do you know what everyone's going to be doing, even the greatest scientists? They are going to be terrified in that day, because they're not going to be able to understand what's going on. And more than that, they will be utterly perplexed about what's happening. What's going on? We don't understand. That's my view. Study it out for yourself, and see from those Old Testament passages what you think, but I think there's a very realistic likelihood that what Jesus is referring to is actual astronomical changes in the very laws of nature as Jesus, who holds all things together, allows this chaos before the consonants that will come at his coming. So here we see a picture of earth, of crumbling, absolute chaos. The stars of heaven shall fall. What is that? It could be comets. It could be meteors. It could be other kinds of astronomical observances that make people utterly confused and more importantly, frightened. But now notice, secondly, Christ comes. Earth crumbles, Christ comes. Look at what we see. And then, verse 26, and then... Shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory? And then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect, his chosen ones, from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Three things about this coming that I think we see in these three verses. First of all, it's going to be public. It's going to be public. Notice how Mark emphasizes these words. And then... They shall see. Who's they? The people on the earth. They shall see. Now, I I start here because, again, you need to understand other positions that even Bible-believing good, solid Christian people and teachers have believed. Now, you say, why do you tell us about these positions? Well, because I think it's important for you and for me to be students of God's word. And if you believe in the authority of Scripture, you should want to know the best way to interpret this. And the way we do that is by studying what it says and by understanding what it says. And I don't want you, as students of the Bible, to someday confront another view that some other Christian has and they explain it to you and you've never heard it explained like that before and you say, whoa, that's totally true. I've been, I've been missing the boat the whole time. No, we should listen. To these views, one of these views is that these words of Jesus, that the Son of Man is coming, was already fulfilled when He ascended up into heaven. And the reason that many people, at least some people, hold this view is that Jesus is looking back to Daniel chapter seven. And again, I'll just give you this reference. We won't turn back there, but in Daniel chapter seven and verses thirteen and fourteen, Daniel sees in a vision the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days. That's a picture of God, right? That's God the Father. And they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So they see Jesus coming as coming to the Father and being enthroned at God's right hand. And they say, that's what Daniel 7 is talking about. Well, there's a challenge with this, isn't it? Because what Mark makes clear and what Jesus makes clear is they'll see him. They'll see him. The world will see him. Listen to how Revelation chapter 1 puts it. Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him. Did every eye in the entire world see Jesus enthroned in clouds at his Father's right hand when he ascended? No. Will every eye see Jesus when he comes back one day with great power and glory? Yeah. Yep, every eye will see Jesus one day. So I do not believe those words were fulfilled in that. Here's what I believe Jesus is referring to. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1 when his disciples went out to to a hill and they were with Jesus And as they looked up, Jesus went straight up into heaven in a cloud and two angels came and do you remember what they said to his disciples who were just standing there like you and I would have open mouth agape looking up, where did he go? Where did he go? Listen to what they said to him. And when he had spoken these things, while they behold, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, they were staring. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, in the same way as ye have seen him go into heaven. He went up in a cloud, was received into heaven, what's going to happen? He's going to come down in the same way. Same way they saw him go up, he's coming down. This is also why I don't believe, as some very sincere godly people believe, that these words about Jesus coming were fulfilled when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70 That Jesus, they say, came in judgment against his Old Testament people, the people of Israel, and pronounced judgment on them with the destruction of the Romans. Again, I don't see that here in the text because I see that they will see him. They will see him coming with great power and glory. I don't think that fits with the idea that the Romans came for him with their great power and their great glory. I don't see that. I think this is referring to the literal return of Jesus in clouds, just like he went up, and returning to the earth. Here's the second thing we should see about this coming. It's powerful. It's powerful. Isn't that what the text says? And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And I just want you to think about that for a minute. What will that coming be like? Do you know what our New Testament says in other passages that coming will be like? It says that it will be with flaming fire i don't i don't know even how to conceive of that in my mind i don't even know how to conceive of looking up into the heavens when all this chaos is going on and seeing like a flaming fireball come toward earth i don't know if that's actually a literal depiction of what it's going to be But we know it is going to come with an unmistakable, public, powerful sign. Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. We studied this now many months ago. Jesus says that he will come in the glory of his Father. Think about, for a minute, those of you who know your Old Testaments, what is the glory of his Father like? It's the kind of glory that when it showed up in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah fell on his face like a dead man. And couldn't even look at it. It's the kind of glory that whenever it shows up in the Old Testament called the Shekinah glory. You've heard that phrase? The Shekinah glory of God. People get down on their knees and they can't bear to look. It is so bright. It is so overwhelming. It is so glorious. And Jesus says, that's what I'm coming in. I am coming in the glory, the Shekinah glory, the radiant light of my Father. I, I, I'm telling you, friends, Hollywood directors cannot, cannot give you even a slight idea of what that day is going to be like, of what his, the glory of it, the glory of God himself coming down from heaven to earth, and his feet will come and rest on this planet again. Wow. Is it any wonder, friends, that we sang this morning, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Do you know what Revelation chapter 1 says? Not only will every eye see him, he says, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds, all families, all tribes of the earth shall wail because of him. They will wail for many in horror because the one that they rejected and scorned and mocked and killed his followers and persecuted to the ends of the earth, they will see that his judgment on them will be final listen to what second thessalonians says that when jesus will be revealed from heaven there's it's going to be public He will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his Father. This is going to be a sobering day because he is coming as judge. He is coming to address the chaos of the world, the dissonance of the world, all the evil of the world. He is coming to make things right in the glory of God himself. Friends, Hitler has not seen the last of his crimes. Stalin has not seen the last of his wickedness. But do you know what's most sobering, friends? For those of us who don't know Jesus, we haven't seen the last end of ours either. He's not just coming for the most wicked, He's coming against all sin, all evil, all wrongdoing, and every eye will see him. Oh, it's a powerful coming. Jude 1 tells us, in addition, that he will be coming with ten thousands of his saints. ten thousands of his saints coming down from heaven with him. Many people believe that this refers to the raptured church who have gone up with him into heaven and will be coming down with him on that day. God willing, in the next week or two, we'll be talking about the rapture and trying to understand the biblical basis or not for that doctrine. But for right now, just, just picture Jesus coming back to earth in his Father's glory and every eye seeing him in this public and powerful display. But notice thirdly, the third thing is that personal Do you see here in verse 27? And then he shall send his angels and shall gather together his elect, his chosen ones, from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth, the farthest nation away, to the uttermost part of heaven. Do you know what I love about this poetic language Jesus uses? I think he's saying this. I'm not going to miss one. I'm not going to miss one. Is there some person in the farthest corner of the globe who trusts me and has, and has me as his own? That person is my chosen one. I'm not going to miss him. I'm going to bring every one of my flock I'm going to gather every one of my chickens. Again, you just think about this. Picture of mother hen and her chickens, and they're scattered around, and a hawk flies overhead, and all the chickens come running back, and Mom gathers them under her wings to a safe place of protection and preservation, and I just see Jesus coming in the face of all this chaos as his people are being persecuted and killed and destroyed all over the world, and he gathers them together, and not one is missing. Every single chosen one comes home. What a day. What a day that will be. Oh, Jesus comes. You see, friends, in 2 Thessalonians 1 right after we just read where Jesus is coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on his adversaries. Do you know what Paul says next? When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. So to some people he will be coming and it will be terrifying. Do you know what to others it will be? The greatest possible joy. Because they know that guy. They know him. He's their savior. He's their friend. They've been talking to him for their whole lives almost. They've been getting to know him. And then he comes. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to be admiring him. He's going to be coming down in heaven. And they're going to be saying, finally, we've been waiting for this day. Jesus, I've been waiting for you to come back my whole life. I can't wait. Now you're here to be admired. Wow. Dissonance will move to perfect consonance for his people, for his chosen ones. All his angels gathering together, his chosen ones, from every corner of the earth and heaven to be united with him eternally. You know, friends, I was thinking about this. Some of you kids experienced this when mom and dad went away. We had that a little bit this week. Brandon and Joanna, Joanna's Tabitha's sister, they're here in town staying with us, and we watched their three kids. They got away for a couple nights, and yesterday, mom and dad came back. And you should have seen those little kids, four and under, just ready. Mom and dad come back, and they're just at that car. Uncle Pete and Aunt Tab can't measure up, folks, okay? They just could not measure up to mom and dad. That was such an exciting thing. And you know, it's going to be like that for some people when Jesus comes back and his feet touch the earth. You're here. I've been waiting for you. But do you know what it's going to be like for others? I remember this picture. How many of you remember when you were a kid at home and dad was at work and you got into trouble? And your mom said, When dad gets home, when dad gets home, were you waiting for dad to show up? You were waiting. But you weren't waiting with expectation. You were waiting with fear. You said, "Uh uh-oh. Dad, I hope you stay late today. I hope you're not rushing. I hope you hit a little rush hour traffic on the way home so I can get a couple more pairs of jeans on underneath, right? That's what you're saying. And you know, for some people, when Jesus comes back, They're not going to be waiting for him because why? Because they know they don't have the relationship with him. They know there's things standing between him and them. There's rebellion that's never been taken care of. And the only thing they can look forward to when Jesus comes is his judgment. Oh, friend, if that's you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know whether he's coming back to be your savior, please don't walk out these doors this morning until you know that, until you know him, until you're ready to wait for him and say, okay, I'm ready for you to come back because you've forgiven me of my sin and there's nothing between me and you. Oh, friend, don't leave here today unless you've taken care of that business. So first notice that, that there is this earth chaos, earth crumbling, Jesus, the Christ coming. And then finally, I want to ask ourselves what it's going to be like for Christians to await, Christians to await him. Again, put yourself in the position of these disciples. They're sitting here, friend, at the very end of Jesus' life. Don't forget that. Jesus is about to be hung on a cross in about two days. In about two days, he's going to die for your sins and mine. They're at the end of his life, and he's been telling them this. Guys, I'm going to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. You want to talk about dissonance? You want to talk about chaos? You want to talk about trouble? And then what does he tell them in this sermon? He says, boys, when I'm gone, it's going to be bad. They're going to haul you in and they're going to arrest you. And they're going to kill you. And it's going to be persecution for you. And then Jerusalem. And then there's going to be this great time of tribulation coming. And my followers are going to have to flee. It's going to be so hard that there's going to be no time like it in all of human history. And then the earth is going to be coming apart at the seams. Dissonance. Chaos. What do you think they felt when Jesus looked at them? Probably with a steely eye, I would imagine, and said, and then, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. What do you think? Do you think they sat forward in their seats and said, yeah, yeah. Make it quick. Make it quick. And friend, do you know in the heart of every Christian that loves Jesus, truly, legitimately loves Jesus? Well, let me me step back for a moment from that statement. Let me make this one. God expects us to have in our heart, for those who love Jesus, a desire to say, Jesus, make everything right now. Come. Now, I know for some people the coming of Christ can be A place of fear because it just feels I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be like. There can be a time of, there can be a place of just confusion. But friends, it shouldn't be when you realize that dissonance is moving to consonance. When you realize that chaos is going to move to completion when you realize that all of the trouble that is surrounding us today is going to come to a state of absolute perfection, and when we look around at the world today and we see all the chaos and all the trouble for all our brothers and sisters who are being killed and persecuted all over the world, when we see even in this country the rejection of biblical truth, the rejection of who Jesus Christ is, how much we should say in our hearts, Lord, come quickly! We're ready. We're ready for you to make everything right. We're ready for you to take care of all the evil. That's how we should be. But do you know what I fear? I fear that for some of us, because we in this country live in an unprecedented place of of wealth, of prosperity, of comfort, of safety, of material enjoyment... Do you know, friends, I wonder how many of us are, are fine with Jesus staying away a little longer because we're having a good time. I, I think there's legitimately, there's some young people who say, you know, I want to experience some things before Jesus comes again. I'm not so sure I'm ready for him to come back. We're, I, want it, I want to live life a little more. Friends, let me just say to you, we need to come into the position of what the Bible tells us when we look all around us and we see the trouble that exists now and that will be coming in the future, for us to say with the Apostle John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We're ready for you to make everything right. We're ready for you to establish your kingdom fully and finally on this earth. We're ready for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. We're ready. Come and bring dissonance to consonance forever. Friend, what about you this morning? What are you thinking about the return of Jesus Christ to this earth? Are you able to say, when Jesus says, behold, I come quickly, are you able to respond with him? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Don't be afraid by the dissonance you see today. Don't be afraid or concerned about the chaos and the trouble that's in this world and is in your life. Recognize that God has hardwired us to recognize, to realize that dissonance will move to consonance. And one day Jesus will come and make everything right.